National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We've got a great show for you today, and one that I think will connect many threads together to tell a great story. Uh, We've done previous shows discussing how we hold government accountable to the people here in the United States. The fourth estate, as we often refer to the free press in America, plays part of that critical role, especially when investigative journalists uncover the illegal or potentially illegal and sometimes amoral or unethical activities carried out in our name in support of American national security interests. America is a beacon of hope and freedom to the world because of our rule of law and respect for democratic institutions stretching back more than 200 years. And we, when we violate our own norms, our standing in the world is diminished. There's another critical role the free press plays as the fourth estate in America, and that role is simply to inform us as citizens, to challenge our perceptions and beliefs, and to draw attention to global issues so we can learn about the world around us. With us to discuss these aspects of journalism, and specifically journalism connected to national security, is John Rash. John Rash is an editorial writer and columnist for the Minneapolis Star-Tribune. His Rash Report column analyzes media and politics, and his focus on foreign policy has taken him on international reporting trips to nine nations and the National Security Seminar at the U.S. Army War College. Prior to joining the Star-Tribune, John was a senior vice president and director of media analysis for Campbell Methune, a national advertising agency. John graduated from the University of Minnesota with a degree in political science and a minor in French, and then returned to the U as an adjunct professor in the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication, where he taught mass media and politics, mass media and popular culture, and other courses at both the graduate and undergraduate level. John Rash's commentary can be heard on WCCO Radio on Friday mornings at 8.20 a.m. John Rash, welcome to National Security Week. This week, it's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, John. Are you sitting in your uh, your office? Is that right? Indeed. Uh, we have some meetings a little bit later on. We are going to be looking at digital readership trends, and I'm going to be interviewing after this show, um, which is usually on the, on the other side of the microphone or on the other side <laughs> of the interview process here, and I'm going to be speaking to an author whose book is getting a whole lot of notice here. Um, the name of the book is quite grave, so is the situation, and the name of the book is The Heat Will Kill You First. Uh, and yeah. so my column this week is going to be about the heat, of course locally, but globally, and how it's not just a geoclimactic, but a geopolitical challenge. And as you're well aware, John, the Pentagon um, and all branches of the military increasingly look at climate change as a threat multiplier and something that they have to take into account in terms of its potential to create conflict, if not chaos, um, between and within nations. So I'm going to be writing about that this week. That is a timely topic. Uh, So, John Rash, I I generally like to start our our weekly show by learning a little bit more about our guest. Uh, You chose to major in political science and, and minor in French at the University of Minnesota. 
Uh, those are great degrees to attain if you want to learn more about the world in which we live. Hey, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into journalism? What, what was the path that took you from undergraduate studies to marketing and eventually into journalism? Well, thank you for asking. It was a series of serendipitous events. And um, I went to the university, as you mentioned, got a political science degree in a French minor and um, ended up in advertising. And, and perhaps it's because if you ever want to see the most political place you can possibly be in an advertising agency is, is right up among there. But uh, <laughs> I suppose one could say that about a lot of workplaces. And so um, in many ways, marketing and advertising actually has a lot of direct ties to political science in that it's the study of people and the study of how bonds are formed um, this way through media as opposed to politics, although you and I and our listening audience both know the interrelation between the two is ever stronger. And I was in the media department. I negotiated with television networks for commercial time. So part of what I did was to analyze audiences, not just what they're watching, but why they're watching it. So, you know, on a quantitative and qualitative basis, looked at pop culture very deeply. And, you know, I began to just completely on my own write about it literally kitchen table writing, often late at night, um, and then got the gumption to bring it to my colleagues. They liked it. They published it. Um, and um, it got a lot of notice, not because it was any good or so good, but because people are really interested in television and media. And so, you know, they, uh, the press picked up on it a lot, and I began to um, write more and speak more and then began to comment on WCCO radio um, at one point, I had a show on WCCO Radio beyond working as director of media analysis for the advertising agency. I wrote a daily column for Ad Age magazine in terms of the ratings race and why um, certain shows were doing well and certain shows were not. Um, and um, began to do some commentary for the Star Tribune. And then a potential opening came on their editorial board and um, I decided to make a mid-career transition. And, you know, just by quick background, and again, thank you for asking, I studied political science in French. I was very interested in becoming a diplomat. And, in fact, at one point um, when I made this mid-career transition, I took the foreign service exam and uh, passed the written and the oral one. Um, fortunately, was asked to join the State Department and ended up for a series of reasons not doing that, but ended up here at the Star Tribune and, you know, indeed have been able to, been very fortunate to travel to these nine nations, as you say, and to write about international issues, including national security. So kind of in a circuitous route, I've, I've really been able to um, meld my interest in media as well as foreign affairs and been very fortunate with my opportunity here at the Star Tribune. So in this second career you're in as a journalist uh, and, and now on the editorial team at the Star Tribune, what, what, what are the critical roles that the press of the fourth estate plays in our American republic? I, I have to imagine you've gained enough experience over the years uh, that you possess some really important insights into the critical role that the, the, the First Amendment plays in representative democracy like ours. Thank you for asking. And I, I think that, you know, People far smarter than me and far earlier than me recognize this, including most, perhaps most famously, Thomas Jefferson, who would um, often talk about the virtues of and, and the necessity of a free press to a free republic. And I think that that's more important than ever because 
while human nature may not have completely changed since Thomas Jefferson's time, technological transformations have, and the ability to misinform or disinform and, you know, the new era that we're on the eve of with artificial intelligence and, you know, the impact that that can have internationally in terms of undermining democracies and spreading mistruths. We're seeing some of this clearly as one example, you know, routinely coming out of Russia um, and the Kremlin disinformation protocols that they have there. So I think it's extraordinarily important to have a vigorous free press, to have one without fear or favor, to um, be able to call out the truth. Now, increasingly, it's harder to get that truth out or to coalesce people around it. Um, before I, you know, many decades before I had the privilege of writing for the Star Tribune, I delivered the Star Tribune as a paper boy. Back then, it was the Star. Um, and, you know, I look back at the, on those days here in the Twin Cities, and I think I delivered a paper to nearly every doorstep on my route. Basically, everyone got the newspaper. And this was a time, 60s and, and early 70s, when, you know, you had people who could coalesce around one or two newspapers, um, one or two major, quite serious and quite impressive magazines, Time magazine being, you know, perhaps the, the most representative example at that point, Newsweek as well. You had three networks with really robust news organizations that were looked at as the pride of their networks and not expected to turn a profit, but to turn the stories up. And they did, a, in general, a very good job of that. And so people generally were presented with relatively the same type of facts. Now, what that doesn't mean is that everyone agreed on them, but they agreed on what to disagree on at minimum. And, and we, of course, had really robust debates in you know, the late 1960s as just one example of a very turbulent American era, and we're in another very turbulent era. But one of the dynamic differences is that while the ability to disseminate information would have been the stuff of science fiction back in the late 60s, right now you are not having people take in the same information. Some people are taking in a remarkable amount of disinformation, much of it coming from our country and you know all of it politically motivated from that perspective. And so there are clear challenges out there, but we think it's really, really important, and more than ever when you do this job, you know, that you have some attempt, however imperfect, at some definitive account of what's happening in our community and in the world more broadly. And so just to play a very small part in that is, is quite a privilege. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Star Tribune editorial writer and columnist John Rash. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, John Rash, I noted in our introduction this morning that you uh, have traveled and reported for, traveled to and reported from nine foreign nations, and you also attended the National Security Seminar at the U.S. Army War College in, in, in Carlisle Barracks, uh, Pennsylvania. I'd like to take those two things in reverse order. First, what is the National Security Seminar at the Army War College, and what lessons did you take away from that experience? Well, as you know, the U.S. Army War College gathers people that, that um, from all branches of the military and from multiple countries and has them go through uh, about a year-long program and, and process where they're in a cohort. Um, all of them are officers, 
and they not only learn about, you know, and share knowledge of their military specialties, but more than anything, you know, one of the many admirable aspects of our national security apparatus in this country is they're trying to learn how to avoid conflict um, and the geopolitical dynamics that lead to it, what role the military can and will play, and they're as much, if not more, focused on diplomacy than they are on warfare. Now, of course, if indeed they do end up in a conflict, there's an incredible effort to win it, as is appropriate for any military anywhere. So that certainly isn't forgotten and isn't downplayed, but you know, they're looking at some of the broader dynamics that, that lead to it as well. So the security seminar takes people they perceive as civilian leaders, and I was honored to be included in that. You're nominated by someone within the military, and I was uh, got that um, designation by someone in the Minnesota National Guard at that point, where they'll bring them there for a week, and you are teamed up with one of the officers, and um, you spend a week with them going through these seminars, going through you know what they're trying to hash out in small groups and then much larger lectures. As just one example, when I was there, um, they had the director of the Central Intelligence Agency come and address the entire cohort, both the military officers uh, of Americans and of our partners and allies abroad, but also those taking part in the national security seminar. So you know there were many really broad lectures like that and really trying to, to take on tough problems. So um, that was something that I, I greatly benefited from. And I, I had had some, and then later had some exposure as well, being embedded uh, with the Minnesota National Guard on two different endeavors. And, and when I say embedded, there are journalists that take much bigger risks than I did. So I don't mean to overstate that, but that's the official designation that I had in that I went over to Kuwait as Many Minnesota National Guard members were leaving Iraq, um, and part of the effort was how do we reintegrate them into society. This was during a, a deep recession, and they wanted to make sure that people didn't come back um, and face a jobless future here. So there, there was a big civil society effort to help those who are friends and neighbors in the Guard who had been serving in Iraq. That was a and yellow, was, yellow ribbon campaign, is that right? Was that absolutely? Yeah. So and uh, um, they. It's called the Employment Resource Team. So they brought some key employers and some people to, to help all these um, guard members who, who were coming back. And then a few years back, in a really prescient trip, um, I went to Lithuania, where, of course, President Biden and NATO nations had just met a couple months ago. I was there a few years ago, where the Minnesota National Guard took part in the largest, largest NATO training exercise since, world, since the end of the Cold War at that time. Um, with the scenario that um, Russia via Belarus um, had invaded Eastern Europe um, and basically the, the gap between Poland and, and the Baltics. And thank goodness that has not happened. But of course, we all know what has happened regarding Russia's unprovoked and illegal invasion of Ukraine. And so much of what NATO was talking about then, unfortunately, in a different situation, but came true. And, and so NATO has been quite concerned about this kind of possibility for quite some time. So I was able to be embedded with the Guard as they took part in that massive training exercise. And, um, you know, for those who ha have been part of or have been exposed to the National Guard and the military 
at large, you know, it was quite impressive um, in terms of what they were able to, to bring and, and their commitment to the cause and, and to this country. Yeah, that, that gap you mentioned, the Sawalki Gap, is, uh, is yeah. this sort of space through Lithuania uh, that connects Belarus to uh, Kaliningrad, which is actual Russian yeah. territory. Uh, that has been a, a strategic conundrum for NATO uh, for many decades, uh, sadly. So secondly, the, 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 the takeaways that you have from your time reporting abroad, you've mentioned a couple of those places. If I could ask you to maybe just take two minutes on each of these, China, Rwanda, and Kazakhstan. Uh, what was your takeaways from visiting those three countries? I had the privilege of going to nine nations, and the one thing I can take from China is um, I have never been anywhere more opaque. Um, <laughs> and normally, John, when you go on these trips, you'll have officials, you know, I've met with the president of Rwanda as an example, or you'll meet with foreign ministers, and, and you know, they in general will... Um, talk about, sometimes off the record, but mostly on the record, um, their national objectives and goals and perspectives. And then you'll have people who talk to you off the record, including some officials and including, and especially some of the citizens. And China was the one country where it was extraordinarily difficult to get through to anyone who would not have the party line. And it seemed that the average citizen was um, so felt so extraordinarily fortunate on the great leap forward, in effect, to borrow a Chinese uh, phrase from the, the party's history, um, but this one being real in terms of, you know, how they went from, um, you know, an economically economic basket case to, you know, one of the wealthiest um, countries and one of the biggest, second biggest economy in the world. Um, but, you know, just how dynamically different both societies are and also how increasingly confident Chinese people and the Chinese government was in their worldview. And so some of the um, diplomatic conflict that's roiling right now, I could see foreshadowed during that trip. Yeah. Uh, John, I want to get into the kind of the nuts and bolts of, uh, of journalism and national security reporting. Uh, what, what is the methodology that you use uh, in choosing a topic uh, to discuss in your in your rash report when it comes to national security topics? I mean, how do you look out at the world and say, hey, that, that topic is something I'd like to address this week. I, I ask because for me as a retired intelligence officer in the Navy uh, and someone who teaches at national, uh, you know, national Security Elective Courses at Carleton College uh, now and again, I look at the world and I see chaos everywhere. <laughs> how, how do you sift through that chaos to choose the one critical topic uh, that you're going to address in your rash report column? You have, what is it, eight, 800 words uh, to describe the issue? Is that right? At times, yeah, 800 to 1,000 and, and all that. And so you're, you know, part of the method is, um, and I think a lot of journalists try to do this, you're, you're trying to get 20 pounds of potato and you've you got to <laughs> step into a five-pound sack at the end. But you want more information and more um, material than you can use and then to cull it and, and use the best. But, again, thanks for asking. At times that very chaos or conflict is the story is one that can't be ignored and is one that should be written about from that perspective. So um, that will grab you by the journalistic lapels and shake you and say, you should say something like this. And, and it, you know, at times it's something that's long brewing um, that you've seen develop, but has really hit an, an inflection point or um, a, a really critical stage. At times it's something that you know, takes you completely by, um, or at least the national security apparatus, somewhat by surprise, if not 
the actual event, then the timing, and then you decide that you need to write about it. Um, other times, and most often, I'm looking for relevance for readers. So, you know, they, they want to jump into it and learn more about it. But I think often looking for connections. I think if there's one thing that, that I try to consistently do is what does it mean and to put these connections into context? And again, just a real quick example here. Um, it's really hot outside. You know, for all of our listeners, you know, this morning, you step outside of the studio in Northfield or in the office here in downtown Minneapolis, it's going to be 95 degrees, you know, mid-afternoon here. And that's really challenging. But, you know, there are parts of the world right now where that would be a cool front, um, as you're yeah. aware, yeah. both in North America, you know, Phoenix. And, you know, you look at the New York Times this morning and, and uh, you know, fires in Greece because of the heat. Um, 34 died in Algeria because of the heat yesterday. Um, and this is happening around the world. And so part of it is it's timely to write about this. Part of it is, you know, a connection to the book that I referenced before, The Heat Will Kill You First. But from a national security perspective, something I've long been concerned about, and to the degree I can get this all into the column will be part of my challenge here, but what happens when the world gets too hot in certain areas and people feel the legitimate, justifiable need to flee? And if you look at the dynamic of what is perceived as, at times, uncontrolled migration, as a driver of geopolitics, it seems true everywhere around the country. Um, in illiberal democracies, in democracies like ours, and you and you look at the rise of former President Donald Trump, um, partly in reaction to the border with Mexico and the idea of building a wall and having the government of Mexico pay for it. You look at um, how immigration has roiled Australian politics. And clearly, the Mediterranean, Mediterranean migration crisis um, has been extraordinarily challenging for European governments. And that's just from one con major conflict in Syria, and a serious one, of course, at that. And then you have some you know, Afghan refugees and others thrown into that. But what might happen if it's simply too hot in parts of South Asia, Bangladesh and India, Pakistan, areas like that, and there's a, a legitimate life and death decision, people just can't stay, or if this happens in the Sahel or parts of, you know, North Africa, and, you know, how might that play out geopolitically, what kind of chaos or conflict might that cause, and indeed, might that cause, as it has in so many countries, a more right-wing reaction, you know, that brings much, you know, brings illiberal governance to some of these countries to respond to this. Um, and so as just that example, I look at the connections to what's happening literally outside, you know, people's homes right now um, and think about it from a broader perspective. So those are the types of, you know, opportunities on something that has been ongoing, but now it might be an opportunity to write about it. Yeah. And, and we all have, you know, opinions about what's going on in the world. Sometimes it can be hard, I think, in this work uh, in journalism to separate your own personal emotions uh, from from the fact-based reporting that you do. I know that I, as an intelligence officer, it was my job to, to deliver facts to my commanding officer. 
And I, I can explain that job description effectively by simply quoting former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Colin Powell, who said of intelligence, tell me what you know, tell me what you don't know, and tell me what you think based on the facts. In your work as a journalist, how do you separate your own personal views and feelings about topics uh, on which you may choose to write? Uh, when we look at the world and we see the horrors of war or genocide, war crimes, slaughter of civilians, and all manner of other egregious behavior, how do you maintain a logical, rational, fact-based approach to your writing? And how do you connect the dots for readers in a way that clearly explains the truth of a situation without prescribing your own solution set to the challenges? Well, I'm blessed in, in many ways here, and part of it is my role as, as an opinion writer. But So I think this is even more challenging for my tremendous colleagues in the newsroom who, you know, on every topic need to try to take as objective an approach to it and to try to keep their personal opinions, you know, out of um, what they, you know, what they're, what they're reflecting there. And, and this is increasingly challenging in a deeply divided society. Now, as an opinion writer, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have one of the few jobs in America that if I'm not reading the newspaper at my desk, and I don't have an opinion, I get in trouble. So, you know, it, uh, um, the things that normally might get you sideways with, with your boss are, are the opposite here. But that being said, I write what I and others might call a reported column. Um, almost every single thing that I write, I have multiple sources. And sometimes that doesn't even reflect how many people, you know, I've spoken to about an issue and often and, and, and John, you've been kind enough to be a source for me on, on national security issues. And sometimes we'll have conversations that aren't reflected in that immediate week's column or an editorial you know, that I'm writing, but helps form the basis of a narrative or, or of my thinking on an issue. And I'm constantly having these conversations. Tomorrow morning, I have breakfast with Finland's ambassador to the United States. Now, when I met with him a few months ago, I ended up writing a column about it because it um, coincided to a certain degree with, with Finland's ascension um, to NATO and, and uh, uh, some of the challenges, you know, happening, you know, regarding the, the alliance there. So I don't know if a column will come out of it, but certainly his current thinking um, about the war in Ukraine, about the tacit agreement from Turkey to allow for Swedish ascension, you know, that, that'll be built into the narrative. But I have a reported column and I try to bring in different, at times, competing voices, you know, into the narrative. And I almost always will and indeed should bring my opinion into it at some point. Um, and, and that should be, an op and I, think, I believe is clear to the readers of the column. But, you know, there are some writers, and some of them are terrific, and I read them and, and respect them, um, who write columns, you know, much, much more their own viewpoint and, and without outside voices. And, and that's, you know, a, a different way to approach it. And, and again, just a very legitimate way to practice opinion journalism. But I always try to remember, and if I don't, our readers will remind me, um, <laughs> you know, I'm not the expert. Um, I have the privilege of getting access to some of the top experts in the country, if not the world. And, and my, my quest is always to find the smartest people possibly about a topic and be able to 
share their voice and their perspective in the Star Tribune and, and then form a narrative out of that. And I think it it makes it more interesting for readers, builds trust with readers. And even if people disagree with me, perhaps the kindest compliment that I'm consistently paid is that was thoughtful. And if, if people leave that that was thoughtful and it gives them a different way to think about an issue um, or just to think about it at all, I feel like it's mission accomplished. Uh, John, we have to take a, about a minute break uh, to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. Uh, we'll, we'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here on National Security This Week with our guest, John Rash, who serves as an editorial writer and columnist with the Star Tribune newspaper. John, let's get into some of the things happening around the world today. I'd like to ask you to give us your take on some of these uh, this, these crisis areas, but maybe explain to us how you would view the crisis uh, as a journalist. What is the angle you might consider uh, were you to provide reporting on the situation or, you know, a rash report opinion piece? Uh, I'd like to throw a few places at you, listen to what you think is the critical angle to consider, the issues or elements that would maybe catch a reader's attention and keep them engaged if you were to write about it. And uh, let's start with Ethiopia. The civil strife happening inside Ethiopia gets little attention. And while there is supposedly a ceasefire in the northern part of Ethiopia with the Tigrayan people and the central government uh, and with the government of Eritrea on the northern border, that, that clash isn't really over. And there are other things happening inside Ethiopia as well. What's the story there as you see it? Well, this is a great example, John, of, you know, journalism, as is often called the first draft of history. Um, and sometimes the Nobel Peace Prizes are as well. And I wrote about Ethiopia on the day of, so on every year when the Nobel Peace Prizes are, award, are awarded, the, uh, it is done on a Friday um, and done early morning because, of course, it um, happens in Europe. And, you know, woke up that morning along with the rest of the world quite surprised that, you know, Abi Ahmed Ali, who is the president of Ethiopia, very young, uh, chronologically and in his tenure as president, had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And um, part of this was, you know, or what they had said at the time were his efforts to achieve peace, especially with Eritrea, north of Ethiopia. And, and this is an example of, you know, a much more aspirational than actual uh, accomplishment. Um, and sometimes if you look at the history of the Nobel Peace Prizes, they do this as much as anything to lend gravitas to the recipient, to the laureate, to be able to advance their work. Some people would argue giving it to President Obama in the first year of his uh, tenure was an example of this. And, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize, because it's decided by people, is flawed like any endeavor, you know, in, in that respect. And <laughs> yeah. Aung San Suu Kyi of, of Burma, you know, has been awarded it and, and didn't end up being the human rights champion, um, as we saw with the Rohingya refugee crisis, you know, that, that developed under her watch as well. But regarding Ethiopia, it is undercovered. Um, the conflict was horrible. Um, 
food starvation was used as a weapon. Um, human rights abuses were replete, you know, on both sides, but especially, you know, with, by our reports with the Ethiopian armed forces. Um, and it also plays into, and so if I were to jump into it as a journalist right now, um, it plays into a narrative from every many African nations that they believe the West is highly hypocritical in their extraordinary concern over Ukraine um, in that where is this kind of concern and international mobilization when we have conflicts on our continent um, and, and elsewhere in the global south, um, you know, that it's not commensurate in any way. And there's certainly some truth to that. Now, I would argue and, and have um, in writing um, that I think it's deeply unfortunate that many African leaders have forgotten their own nation's liberation struggles and, and don't have, you know, um, as close an association as they should with their peer President Zelensky in Europe and instead look at their peer President Putin in the Kremlin as more of a kindred spirit. And, you know, in particular, South Africa, I, th I think, is, is, you know, direct reflection of this. So as a journalist, that might be the jumping off point because it's relevant to you know, the Ukraine conflict, which is, you know, appropriately still um, top of the newscasts and, and top of our, our headlines at, at times. But um, there's no doubt that more attention can and should be paid to the conflict in Ethiopia as well. Yeah, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have uh, Steve Andreasen from uh, the Humphrey School uh, on to, to spend an hour just talking about Ethiopia and Eritrea. Uh, John Rash, how about the Balkans? Uh, I've had confirmation from previous guests uh, that Russian intelligence is likely very active in the Balkans, and particularly in Serbia. There's obviously a connection there between uh, Russia and Serbia. Uh, and the Russians are seeking to destabilize the region, maybe reignite ethnic strife, which really is kind of... <laughs> simmer below the surface since the Dayton Accords uh, back in 1996. Uh, how, how might that look, uh, how might you look at that as a story, and how would you write about it, uh, the situation in the Balkans? Well, I think your sources are quite right from what, what I have read and from what I have heard, and I think it's an underreported story. So my approach journalistically may simply be that, that, you know, I often end um, conversations with geopolitical analysts of what am I not asking about that I should or what keeps you up at night that no one's talking about? And this would be an example of an underreported or undercovered conflict, however simmering or, or real at, at this point. Um, and part of the storyline, of course, would be Russia. And this is a place where you know they've tried to assert Slavic brotherhood um, in, in terms of many of the former Yugoslavian you know nations that are there, and a way to undermine you know, with the underbelly of, of, of the West here, you know, in terms of the unity that they've been able to achieve. And, you know, you certainly and I think our listeners don't forget that there are now 32 NATO nations, but, you know, it's often perceived and dominated, of course, by the U.S., the U.K., France and Germany, and increasingly Poland, you know, with the um, conflict in Ukraine. But, you know, there are multiple more nations and not all of them are completely in sync with the direction of NATO and, and the, the West writ large. And this is a way to undermine that. Um, and it also goes back to a recent column that I wrote. Um, Andrew Weiss, who is a highly respected 
um, Kremlinologist, you know, a studier of, of Russia, worked in the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, and um, is now at um, with the International Crisis Group. And, and uh, um, he could have written, as he says, a 700-plus page biography <laughs> of President Putin, um, you know, that he said most people wouldn't read. He instead took an incredibly novel form in a graphic novel and wrote about it, just a terrific piece. And I wrote a column ab about it. And part of it, you know, it, it's sneakily um, uh, wonky in, in many ways, you know, even though it's, it's done in a graphic novel form. And part of it is President Putin's obsession with what are often called the color revolutions, like the orange revolution um, in Ukraine and, and the ones that swept Georgia and, and elsewhere. And, you know, the, the revolutions that, that broke up the Balkans were a little bit different, but um, President Putin feels that this was the West seizing advantage or, or, or pressing, you know, their advantage at, at that time. And, and uh, he has a long memory. Um, and, and seemingly this is an area where he would like to um, gain some geopolitical, if not geographic, you know, ground back in, in terms of, you know, having these countries which formerly were in the Soviet unions and then Russia's more, more of their sphere of influence, but have, have decidedly tilted West. This is a way to, you know, at least get them to, to lean a little bit further in the other direction. Yeah. And if he can sort of, you know, start a wildfire in the Balkans, uh, that's going to be on NATO's, uh, you know, front doorstep essentially. And NATO would have to deal with that as well as the EU, uh, which takes yes. attention away from what he's trying to do in Ukraine, obviously. So uh, uh, the third country that I'd like to, to talk about uh, is uh, El Salvador. Uh, their president, mm -hmm. uh, Nayib Bukele, was elected on a platform to address really the rampant gang violence that had sort of taken over the nation. Uh, Bukele was granted uh, extraordinary emergency powers, and he used those powers to arrest, just flat-out arrest, some 60,000 known or suspected gang members. Uh, and he threw all those people into these massive prisons, including the one that was uh, quickly constructed specifically to hold the gangs. Uh, and since he's, he did that, violence and crime have plummeted across El Salvador. And, and Bukele has been seen as a bit of a hero to the average citizen. I mean, people used to step outside their front doors, and they weren't sure if they were going to get caught in a gangland uh, crossfire. Uh, and now things are pretty safe. Uh, the, the interesting thing about this, though, is that few of those 60,000 roughly gang members uh, uh, that were thrown in prison have been charged, let, let alone tried, uh, with any crimes. They've just simply been jailed. Uh, and with no move uh, yet to pursue sort of justice under the rule of law. The people in El Salvador don't seem to be overly concerned about this state of affairs, and President Bukele has been allowed uh, to continue with his emergency powers. Uh, what What is the, the story uh, in that nation as you see it? What angle would you take to report on Bukele's actions and the willingness of the people to sort of allow these uh, security measures to continue, sort of abandon, you know, what we understand to be the rule of law, that if you arrest somebody, you need to charge them and try them with a crime? Well, journalistically, I think it's just a significant story that, again, is probably underreported, and particularly one in our backyard. And as, you know, the, so the tie, the connection, um, the context would be that, we have a migration crisis on our border and our borders with Mexico, but certainly not all, and maybe not even a majority of the people trying to get through are Mexican. Um, right. As you are well aware, our, our listeners certainly know there are people from South American and Central American nations, occasionally even some 
Europeans or Asians, you know, who are, are in the fold as well. But, you know, you, you have um, the unrest, particularly in Central America, a lot of it driven by this gang violence that is sending people understandably north because their lives literally depend on it or the lives of their families, and they've either been victimized or soon will be. And you have in some of these countries where, you know, the gangs seem to be running the country as literally is happening in Haiti right now, another undercover story. So that, that's a way to potentially approach this. But um, the way that The Economist magazine this week, in a really smart take on it, as they do on, you know, so many international issues, is that um, this is how you also can erode a democracy in that they note um, the president has 80 to 90 percent approval ratings. And that's not surprising. And some of that certainly is earned in that, you know, um, if you look at your hierarchy of needs, you know, just personal security is at the absolute top. And if, you know, as president, he took a country where the gangs were running the show to where the government is running the show and people have a much higher degree of personal safety, it's it's understandable to some degree justifiable that people would support that. But then what happens when your brother or your father um, or your cousin, and I use uh, you know men in this situation because nearly all these people arrested ha have been men, get swept up in this and have nothing to do with it. And there isn't a recourse. Um, and they're in these horrific conditions. And, and some of our listeners maybe have seen the photos of hundreds, thousands of people, you know, lined up um, shirtless, you know, just wearing, um, you know, the bare minimum. And they're, they're like huddled literally in lines, you know, together. And, and um, you know, it's, it's a human rights watch nightmare, you know, to see what, what's happening in, in some of these, these prisons. And there, as you mentioned, there isn't necessarily a way, or at least at minimum, a quick and efficient and fair way to appeal because a lot of these people haven't even been charged. And then what happens if this moves from gang members to those who want to advocate for those who have been wrongly accused or those who want to, um, to run against the president or his party, you know, in a future election? Um, what's to keep them from being swept up as suspected criminals? And this is how authoritarianism takes hold often at times on, on the back of a relatively popular policy. So you know, this, this is um, how democracies can be lost as well. So, you know, finding that balance is imperative for that country, but doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. And indeed, you know, this could be El Salvador's biggest export in terms of, you know, this governance model. A lot of Central American and South American nations are looking at this. And, you know, don't be surprised if you see a repeat of, of um, these tactics with the hope that they'll have the same political success as the president has had down there. Yeah, you you uh, you highlighted sort of this uh, this process, the loss, the erosion of democracy. Doctor uh, Doctor Moises Naim, who uh, uh, used mm -hmm. to uh, be the editor for a Foreign Policy magazine, has written a couple of books about this uh, this erosion of democracy, where people are you know populist leaders are elected and then they use their power, their their authority, their their uh, popularity to sort of erode the functions, the institutions of democracy to basically put themselves into, a, you know, 
almost a dictatorship, I guess. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Star Tribune editorial writer and columnist John Rash, and we're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, John Rash, you've written some fantastic Rash Report columns uh, on the biggest national security challenge America faces today. That's China. As you look at the challenge that China poses to American national security interests, uh, well, I would say climate change is probably the ultimate uh, national security challenge that, that not only the United States but the rest of the world faces. But from a geostrategic uh, power challenge, uh, that's, that's certainly China. As you look at uh, the challenge that China poses to American national security interests, uh, whether those interests are economic, diplomatic, or, or security-related, what do you see as the most critical to American interests? And, and if you have the time, had the time and the paper gave you the space, what articles might you uh, pen to inform citizens about the challenges ahead with China? Well, first, first, thanks for your kind comments regarding my writing. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting in, in your question, you talked about, I think quite rightly, um, China as the fundamental geostrategic competitor. And then you talked about climate change, of course, perhaps being um, the biggest geopolitical challenge. And, and you know, I know we've talked about this a couple of times in our conversation this morning. Um, and of course, the two are interrelated because any kind of mitigation, let alone solution to climate change is not going to happen without the participation of the two biggest economies in the world. And that's been halting at best. Um, and yet a necessity and an almost existential one um, as we look at, you know, the, the um, data, which is just screaming at the world that that we're hurtling into a, a new and, and much more dangerous and destabilizing era era just for everyday life, let alone national security at that point. So I, I did get the opportunity and, and the, you know, grateful for the paper, you know, for this, of course, as you mentioned, I've written about this many times, but um, I interviewed um, noted Harvard historian and, and political scientist Graham Allison um, when he came into town and actually had a, a great privilege before he passed away to sit with him and former Vice President Walter Mondale um, and talked about um, the, the trends here. And Professor Allison had written um, a book called Thucydides Trap, and it's in effect, um, you know, all the way back to... Um, you know, ancient times in terms of a rising power and an existing power um, during that era um, almost always end up in conflict. Um, and and he gives tremendous number of very convincing examples. And the objective is not to fall into that trap, you know, that he writes about, but in many ways we're hurtling, you know, into it at, at this point. Um, and so if and when I write about this more, I think one of the senses, I briefly mentioned this when you asked me about my reporting trip to China before, and perhaps in, in your observation in national security, you've seen this as well, but the increasing confidence you know, that, that China has and has gained um, on all levels because of their extraordinary achievements um, economically, technologically, um, and, and just their place in the world. And I think it's it's worth reminding ourselves, our listeners, um, that you know it was only a generation or so ago, you know, that, that China was looked at as, you know, that, that it was called the weak man of Asia, um, and 
and they went through what they often perceive as and sometimes directly call a century of humiliation um, where they, they did look at themselves as the center of the world and, and were remarkably influential in Asia and beyond um, and then went through an extraordinarily turbulent period you know where the, the world changed and and they didn't change with it and, and then their change um, with communism did not of course bring you know the the wealth and, and the success that um, the ideology had promised um, but you know ever since Mao passed away and Deng Xiaoping took over and they embraced um, capitalism they've been very very successful at it and and greatly improved their geopolitical position so that brings a lot of confidence and with that confidence comes as they perceive it um, that their right if not demand to reassert themselves on the world stage and their right if not demand to readdress um, what they consider historical wrongs I and most of um, the West and indeed most of the world think that this is fundamentally wrong as it pertains to Taiwan, um, which it clearly has um, not even thinly veiled designs on it at this point. You know <laughs> yeah. that they claim it's a renegade province, and when you think something's a renegade province and you overwhelm it in terms of um, every aspect of national security, from population to income to um, you know, military potential you know, there, there's clear concern that, that China is going to make a military move there. So I think that journalistically reflecting, you know, just the different worldview that seems to exist is, is something that we need to continue to do in no ways to journalistically justify what President Xi Jinping is looking to do, but to try to understand it and put it into context and, and just how challenging this situation is and, can, and is developing toward. So I can give you about four to five minutes on this uh, this last question I want to ask you, but obviously we would be incomplete uh, in, in a discussion about uh, current affairs if we didn't uh, tap into your views on uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, more specifically. What are the key elements of that story, and how would you approach writing about Russia's invasion today, right now? There are so many things to look at this with this issue, I, I know, but I'm really curious to how you know you look at this topic as an editorial writer and columnist. Thanks for asking, and you know this is a subject that I've written about more than any single topic over the last few years, um, and in fact um, helped by some some great sources. But before the full scale invasion, and I think it's important. One thing to note here, as your listeners certainly know, but again to be reminded of, is that this was not an initial invasion. You know, Russia. Um, illegally cleaved Crimea in um, 2014 and then destabilized eastern Ukraine afterwards in February of 2022 was the full-scale invasion but certainly not the first incursion into the country there um, and but a little bit before that February date um, I wrote a column just about you know the, the growing Sovietism in, in, to a certain degree of, of the rhetoric um, and the actions and, and what has been happening, um, you know, in Russia um, as they seem to be emotionally and mentally and certainly militarily preparing their society for war. And indeed, the, the war came. And credit to, you know, your and your colleagues in the national security apparatus, this is one intelligence um, success of the U.S. in that 
they had better and more accurate intelligence than the Ukrainians did about what was going to happen and shared it in real time, not just in Kiev, but throughout the world. Uh, and, they, and they were right about what, what did happen. So um, as with most geopolitical conflicts, this is complex and complicated, but yet couldn't be more clear in that, you know, since the first time since World War II, you have naked aggression in on the European continent of a nation state invading another um, with the clear design of taking it over um, and or at minimum, um, you know, installing a highly favorable, if not puppet government, you know, that that would exist there. Um, that's wrong on every level. And the way that it's been prosecuted, persecuted is a war crime has been officially, you know, been charged now, um, uh, you know, by, in an international tribunal, and they're just scratching the surface of, of what has really happened. The war crime allegations against President Putin and others are regarding the taking of Ukrainian children, but, but the, the war crimes go much, much deeper than that. If the West does not respond robustly, um, it will invite more of this, um, which is something that's uh, keenly believed appropriate through history in Eastern European NATO nations or, you know, Central European nations, um, the, the Baltics, Poland, um, and, and elsewhere. Um, and strikingly, it seems to not be a consensus in this country. And so part of it, as challenging as, as this is, is the domestic dynamics have changed in that, you know, the, the party of, of Ronald Reagan, um, you know, now has their top two presidential candidates, um, President, former President Donald Trump, who is trying to get the job back, who, who won't even um, discern who's right or wrong, he says, because it'll make it harder to solve. But, you know, until you, you know, that, that should be the easiest question of, of any that he gets on the campaign trail and, and won't, um, you know, decide on that. And Governor DeSantis of Florida, who initially called it a territorial dispute, when it's anything but. Um, and so, um, and then you also have, and I've written about this, but you need to look at the Democratic side. And I think that history will look back at this and say that President Joe Biden's um, instincts and interests were right, um, but he almost always consistently seems behind the necessity of how to respond on it. And so, you know, if one agrees with, with the president's firm line that this is a battle between autocracy and democracy and that the West has to show what it's all about and, and NATO has to rally, which it has, um, nearly every major weapon system that most have more immediately deemed essential has come reluctantly and lately and, and late, you know, for Ukraine, be it, um, you know, high Mars or uh, Abrams tanks or now F-16s and, and many other weapon systems in, in between. Um, and I, I think that there is and will increasingly be some regret on on um, how they have been, been late to some of that response. So, you know, this challenge domestically that exists, um, I anticipate this is going to be part of the 2024 campaign. I think it should be a bigger and broader part of it. Um, when you have some candidates on the Republican side, including Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, describe it as a war on woke, um, I would argue and indeed have, you know, that um, by far a, a more pressing 
profound problem is an actual war um, that's happening that our allies may get brought into. Um, and if our allies are brought into it, we'll get brought into it and, and that this should be much more of a of a dynamic dialogue in the campaign that, you know, than it appears to be so far. So, you know, I, I think that there are multiple ways to write about it. And then finally, I would say just in terms of history, I think that it'll prove that President Putin made a major mistake, even if he ends up keeping portions of eastern Ukraine. Um, this fundamentally changed his country's relationship with the West at a time where they needed it, and, and that's not an easily recoverable um, uh, endeavor. Yeah, you, you mentioned a previous article uh, that you had done back on May 19th uh, titled Finland Strengthens and is Strengthened by NATO, where you'd interviewed uh, Finnish Ambassador uh, Hautala. Uh, one of the quotes that you have from him in, in, in that article is that elites in Moscow have, have never fully accepted the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and that this, this invasion, fundamentally the war, uh, is about imperial conquest. Russians feel they're entitled to bring their former great power status back and that this is going to be a long-term problem, and we have to be ready to support Ukraine for a very long time ahead. Uh, John, we're down to just uh, we're actually almost right up at our at our at our window now, but I still want to give you the last word. What else should listeners know about the work done at the Star Tribune, uh, maybe in the newsroom or other columnists or events happening around the world that impact Minnesota? Any other topic that you'd like to address today, briefly in a minute or two? Uh, the floor is yours, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for this opportunity, and it's the type of opportunity that we tried to provide every day at the Star Tribune on the editorial and opinion pages through commentary from all different perspectives. Um, it's a privilege to be able to, in a very small part, contribute to it. And what makes that possible are our readers um, of the paper that's delivered on the doorstep, as it used to, I used to when I was a, a younger uh, person, and on those who read us online. So we're grateful for their participation um, and hope to continue to be able to deliver news from our back door and, and from the, the broader back door of, of the whole world because it's incredibly important that, you know, again, we, we all have a, a sense of what's happening and, and be able to have a civil debate as should happen in this country about the direction we should go. John Rash, thank you so much. That's going to close out our show for today. So John Rash, editorial writer and columnist with the Star Tribune and weekly commentator on WCCO Radio, Thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. Thank you for having me. And I, and I will mention, John, uh, you and I both, we share some of our humble beginnings being paper boys delivering the, the newspaper. I was actually delivering uh, the newspaper, the morning paper, when the Star Tribune uh, merged, when the Star and the Tribune merged okay. together. <laughs> well, this will show my age. I still had an afternoon row yeah. with the Star yeah. at that point. So, yeah. um, except for Sundays, I, I didn't have to get up so early. So I greatly admired it. I did. <laughs> yes, exactly. In the middle of winter, too. So. Yep, yep. 5 a.m. came early uh, in the middle of the winter. Uh, so, folks, that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look, for, look forward to joining you uh, again next week, uh, Wednesday at 9 a.m. Our guest will be Professor Michael Kimmage from Catholic University, and we're going to take a deep dive into kind of the current events that are happening in and around the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. 
Check their website, cybersecuritysubmit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.